Welcome to Model Rail Radio. I'm Tom Barbelay, and this is being recorded live on Skype, June 27th, 2020. Model Rail Radio is the internet's only live recorded radio show where the topic is the hobby of model railroading. It's a Saturday morning, 9am show. As soon as I get off this, well, pretty soon after I get off this podcast, I'm going to be on NMRAX, which will be an amazing opportunity to uh, describe what I do intimately. <laughs> Associated with recording Model Rail Radio. But we do have on a new caller, Hunter Hewson, as this is your first time calling in. Could you please introduce your model railroading interests? Oh, hi, Tom. I've been into the hobby for about a decade. Back into the hobby, I took a big break from when I was a kid, got busy with family and pursuing a career and all of that. And I, um, I model the Penn Central um, in HO, a small branch of the Penn Central near Niagara Falls, um, New York. And, uh, I'm really into uh, writing. I do some blogging. Uh, that's sort of a um, overflow out of my uh, the rest of my life. Interesting. A lot of yeah. In terms of your specific layout, how big is it? What kind of industries are on it? What kinds of interest is there associated with your layout? The layout is uh, uh, about 14 inches deep and about 12 feet long right now. Interesting. It, uh, I'm working on an expansion that goes around to the, another side of the room. Uh, but at this point, it's, it's a small switching layout. It is one industry. It's international paper in, uh, on Tonawanda Island in the Niagara River. Yeah. So I, I mean, operating sessions last about 90 minutes or so. Cool. Uh, and it's just, uh, coming in from staging and switching the various industries, uh, or the various spots in the industry and then, and then, uh, moving back off to staging. So the, uh, the, the expansion part, We'll be, we'll be building some of that over the next couple of years, but uh, I was really focused on trying to get this small layout finished and, and uh, sort of produce some kind of articles and that sort of thing. Interesting. It's been, it's been a long time go, uh, coming, though, right? So in terms of the island itself, is, is there a bridge that is on your layout that leads from the island to the mainland, or how does, how does that work out? Yeah, there will be. It's a swing bridge okay. uh, that New York Central put in. Uh, across a, a short channel in the river, and uh, I'll be building that eventually. Right now, I haven't haven't built that part into the layout yet. So you mentioned ninety minutes worth of operating. Do you have like an existing operating session set up? Do you have existing kind of car card waybill movement planned? How does that work out? So, uh, I set it up by a switch list, and so and it and I you know kind of leave things the way they are when I'm finished. But when friends are coming over, really only takes two people to operate. So when they're coming over, they, uh, I, I'll, I'll, uh, just kind of take an inventory of what, it, uh, where everything is set up, uh, from the last session and then put up a switch list on, a, on some Penn Central, uh, paperwork that I acquired from a good friend. And then we'll, uh, you know, spot the cars. They basically line them up in what's on the train and where it has to go and, and what's in the industry and uh, that has to leave. So sort of like that. It's very simple, very and simple setup. Is the paper plant at one end or is the paper plant kind of a third in and then there's additional switching past the paper plant? No, it's the, the whole, the whole layout that you can see is the paper plant. Oh, and, interesting. and okay. yeah, and the staging, it's, it's kind of a, I think a lot of the, the, the British modelers do this where the staging is just on the edge of the layout and you yeah. just roll in from, from that. Cool. It's inspired by that. So in terms of the various points along the paper plant, what are the various points and what cars do they require specifically? So I've, modeled the uh the wood chip yard as a as a staging track so that's kind of the where the raw materials for the paper come in and then there's uh they call that the wet end of the plant in in paper plant terminology so the wet <laughs> end yeah 
the wet is kind of nasty, isn't it? Don't worry. Where, the wet, perfect. Yeah, <laughs> the, the, the wet end of the plant is, uh, is, you know, they, they accumulate all of the various, uh, uh, chemicals that, that come in to, to contribute to the, um, processing of the wood chips. So at that end of the plant, you get wood chips and you get, uh, all various liquid things. And then there's a, uh, dry goods, uh, warehouse where things like kaolin and, uh, dyes and those sorts of things come in as powders in boxcars. And then there's a small amount of uh, sort of, uh, um, byproducts that, that come out of the, um, the processing of, of the wood. So there's some alcohols and those sorts of things that come out in small quantities. And so those are, uh, those come out of the plant every now and then. And then, uh, obviously finished paper, right? So the, this particular plant was interesting because they produced, uh, it was a small plant, uh, really small plant actually. And by, by the standards of, of the paper industry and they produced very like highly specialized papers. So high gloss papers for magazines, mm. paper for the U S mint as well. Mm. Uh, so these are very highly specialized, small runs, of paper. So it was, uh, I, and you know, it, it was eventually the plant itself was eventually closed down, uh, through some, well, I'm, you know, I'm not entirely sure about this part, but the research that I've done so far points to, uh, a, a number of environmental reviews after mm. the love canal, um, debacle. Interesting. And, uh, and, and so industries all along the Niagara river had to sort their business out. And I think the state, uh, might have paid international paper to, close the plant down and open a new one somewhere else mm. because it's a very it was also a very primitive plant too right it was and paper plants it turns out are kind of uh they're all very unique like they're mm. they're you know they're sort of a, a one-off kind of thing so uh they they're continuously evolving and changing depending on the needs of the industry and the and the the owners uh um what you know the kinds of products that they want to produce and that sort of thing so they change the plant around as as time goes on so this plant itself was was a, a pretty primitive setup. I think paper making in general back then was 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 a rather nasty um, industry. You know, I think they they spent a lot of um, engineering time and effort to clean up that industry quite a bit. And so I think that might have been. It seems to point to that um, with respect to the the plant closing. So, what time period are you modeling? So the, my my modeling interests are generally uh, the Penn Central era, which is 1968 to 1976, mm-hmm. and then inside of that window, I've I've been sort of over time I've been kind of uh, narrowing my focus, and I, I think the sweet spot is somewhere around 72 to 74. Hmm. Interesting. Um, I'm 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 cheating a bit because the plant didn't last very very far into the 70s, so I'm sort of stretching um, history a little <laughs> bit. Yeah. It's the most interesting um, industry in town. So I, I think, you know, it was like it was I was just really taken by it when I started doing the research. The more I learned, the the, the more interesting it seemed it was. So. It is interesting, the distinction between paper plants, because I think when you mentioned some of the input materials that seemed to indicate that there would be, you know, clay processing, which means a very different kind of quality of paper versus, for example, a newspaper plant, which is, I guess, maybe even organisms of magnitude bigger than what you're describing, but has kind of continuous flow and not really the same necessity for, you know, things to make, as you say, the high gloss whites or the kinds of stuff that the US Mint would be using. It's a very interesting industry to pick. How much background research did you do into the industry? Oh, I've done a ton of research into it, but not a lot of it uh, stays in my head because it's really complex science. And, Mm. you know, what's really interesting is that... uh, 
um, like I have a lot of this stuff documented. I, it, it will inform some some magazine articles at some point in time. But uh, I think what's really interesting is the fact that when I came back into the hobby, you know, 10 years ago and, and started building for people and building for myself, I got to know Trevor Marshall really early on and he was blogging at the time. And that's how I got to know him. I, I found his blog, you know, because I, I really you know, I, I needed a hobby and I started looking on the internet, like what, what are the things that I like doing and, and, you know, how, how, what do these hobbies look like? And, you know, I, I had a look at Trevor's, uh, blog and it sort of blew my mind at, at, you know, where the hobby was at that point in time, a decade ago versus what I remember leaving behind in the, the late eighties. I, you know, I was, I was just taken aback by how far the craftsmanship had come and, and what was capable in the hobby. So I got to know Trevor and through getting to know Trevor, I started blogging mm. and then through blogging, I met uh, somebody who uh, contacted me who was a former employee at that plant and he was an employee for a very short period of time because he was an engineering student and he did an internship there. And uh, so uh, as part of his internship, as an, en- as an engineering student, he had to write a report at the end of his, uh, his, his uh, work term there and he still had that report, it's about 30 pages. And the report was basically, you know, a simple sort of maybe undergraduate student paper, just summarizing this is how the, the place where I worked, this is this is how it operates, and these are the processes, and these are the the various chemical things that happen, and all the all the like all sorts of details uh, that are you know well beyond my uh, comprehension. But uh, I, you know, the point what I'm getting to is that is how much the uh, blogging has really uh, expanded. Um, my, my, uh, circle of friends mm. and the depth of knowledge that I can acquire through meeting people that I, I would never have met this person. He's not even interested in trains. Mm. He just, he, you know, he was just cruising around the internet and looking for North Tonawanda history because he lived there for a while. And then he found my blog and he sends me an email and says, Hey, I worked at that plant. Mm. <laughs> and, and that turned into, you know, so, I mean, he's given me this report and these photos and I've, He's asked me not to republish the photos because there's probably some sort of, I mean, he's retired now and everything, but even at the time he, he was likely, um, bound to some kind of, um, you know, respect for privacy for the, 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 uh, industrial processes that happened in the plant and all of that. But nonetheless, it, it informs, a, you know, a great, a great deal of my knowledge of, of what was happening in the industry and what was, you know, a little bit of what was happening with respect to the way that the railway operated. He gave me, um, in his report, there was some car loading information about how many box cars were, f- you know, how many 50 ton box cars were filled on a daily basis. And it was, you know, and how, how many shifts they ran. And it was, it was astounding. But mm. like you said, uh, the, the point that you made was really interesting about a newsprint plant is, you know, it, it almost can't stop. Like it's a continuous thing, mm. right? Because <laughs> they have a contract. Yeah. They have a contract to, I mean, historically anyway, I don't Certainly. know how much. <laughs> I don't know how much that works now, but they, you know, they would have a contract where they would be supplying newsprint to, you know, uh, one, a big paper and the big paper had to print every day and the newsprint wasn't, wouldn't sit around for too long before it had ink on it and got sent out in trucks to go to people's houses. So there's a big pipeline, right? But this is a different kind of, in, um, paper industry where it's, it's, uh, almost a boutique thing. Certainly. Certainly. It's interesting you found Trevor Marshall first because I mean, certainly he, he's at the top of his game or certainly a decade ago still, um, He's at the top of his game. So to find him early on would give you a very interesting view of the hobby versus, I don't know, whatever articles Model Railroad might have been publishing. So very interesting yeah. call there. I think also what I found interesting is this notion that you are, in some regard, fishing. It's like you, you create the blog 
And then just mysteriously, this guy, as you say, crosses paths of the blog, gets in contact with you and gives you this wealth of information. What was, I thought, particularly topical was associated with the sensitivity of the information, because obviously this plant was on the cusp of a series of things. I mean, particularly you described the environmental issues and the shutdown. So, I mean, obviously there could be quite a bit of sensitive information in these photos uh, anyway, but just an amazing source that you found. And this idea of just putting out a blog just as a means for kind of passively gathering information, I thought was really fascinating. It, you know, and it, it has worked out well for me um, in, in the way that I've deployed, you know, some of my social media marketing skills, I guess, from uh, from my livelihood and all of that. But uh, I met I met a bunch of other people that way, too. Uh, Ryan Mandel, who operates um, National Scale Car um, and uh, Ted Collada, who operates uh, Speedwitch. You know, the, those guys ended up. Uh, you know, becoming friends of mine as well, just as by stumbling upon my blog and, 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 you know, through an association with Trevor and then, you know, with Pierre Oliver and over at Yarmouth models. And, and I, and I started to, you know, just kind of accumulate this, this circle of, of, uh, people who I aspired, um, you know, to, uh, to emulate, I guess, in terms of their craftsmanship and their ingenuity around the, the various ways that they engage with the hobby. So, I mean, that, that brings up, you're going on NMRAX in a, mm-hmm. in a couple of hours, right? And mm-hmm. and we did uh, Ryan and and Ted. We did a uh, an online sort of uh, a virtual RPM on the 13th of June, mm-hmm. and it was you know as similar in some ways to to what the NMRA is doing, but ours is a little bit different. It was it was more focused on on a particular. Well, we were focused on freight cars. It was a it was a theme, mm-hmm. and we. And we drew on our friends, right? So we drew on the people that we knew to to present. So it's a very grassroots kind of thing. And so I think that speaks to the um, just the way that I've been operating in the hobby. I don't know that many people, aside from the people who interact with me uh, through my blogs or through the various you know social media um, networks and all of that, um, which is a different experience. I think my point is it's a bit it's a bit of a different experience than somebody. You know, I'm in my mid fifties, right? And most guys in, in this hobby are my age and a bit older. And, and we've all, most of them, I would say, have, have been in the hobby their whole lives and have, have nurtured, you know, lo- really long term friendships with, mm. with, with other hobbyists. Mm. And so I'm a bit of a tourist. I come in, you know, <laughs> out of orbit. I come crash landing into this hobby. And, uh, and so in a lot of ways, I mean, I was at a disadvantage because a lot of things were out of context for me. Mm. Um, but that's, kind of the charm of, of the whole experience for me. I, I, I sort of cherish that a little bit. I don't want, you know, like I, I sort of keep, yeah, I just kind of keep things just far enough away that, that I'm, that I'm, I'm still kind of in the orbit of a lot of different, um, ideas and people and that sort of thing. Have you met Trevor Marshall physically? Have you seen his layout? Have you done anything like that? Oh yeah. Okay. Well, and you know, the thing is, as I, re- as I recall it now, Trevor actually reached out to me after I started blogging. So his blog inspired oh, me to start. And then he reached out to me mm-hmm. and, you know, because I mentioned his blog or something, and he said, Hey, do you want to come over? And so I went over and operated his layout. This is a decade ago. Mm-hmm. And, and we've been, we've been good friends ever since. We chat every day. And, How, how's uh, Trevor doing? Because I mean, I've heard that there have been various changes in his layout. And, um, I mean, I know him primarily through Chris Abbott, although I do yeah. periodically meet other folk that, um, you know, are connected with him. How's, how's Trevor doing through this period? He's doing well. This is a challenge for everybody. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think that when I say he's doing well, I think that, uh, you know, we have to sort of put that in context. Yes. It's, it's been a tough go for all of us, but, uh, 
but I think that that's, you know, uh, um, we can't, we haven't seen each other. Um, he lives about an hour's drive away from me mm-hmm. and, and we're not really set up in such a way that it's convenient for him to just have a driveway visit with me during this, this COVID thing. And he doesn't have a driveway in Toronto. So we, you know, <laughs> we really can't, we really can't visit yes. and social distance right now. So, um, we've been, I think more than before we've been in, in sort of regular contact to sort of provide, uh, moral support and, and just constant contact with other people during this time. And right? it's just, I mean, my understanding is he may have changed layouts as well. What's his current layout? Uh, the Port Rowan layout in okay. Eskill. Oh, okay. So he's still which doing is, that. Okay. Yeah, that's the same layout that it's been. I know that he's, he's, uh, he's, he's the kind of guy who's always sort of exploring, uh, possibilities. And I think some of it might be for article ideas and, you know, for planning art. And, and some of it is for instigating change in our friend group. You know, I know that, that like, for instance, Pierre Oliver was really struggling with his previous layout um, design, mm. wasn't completely happy with it. And I'm sure we can all relate to that, right? You get to a point where you're not really convinced that you've embarked on the right path. But it's a, it's a difficult thing to to walk away from something that you've invested a lot of time in. And And... You know, Trevor was instrumental in coming up with the plan for Pierre's new layout, which is an SP uh, branch line thing. So, you know, I think that's the kind of that that's the sort of influence that that Trevor has a lot of in in our friend group is, mm-hmm. is uh, you know, instigating um, uh, introspection, I guess, or, you know, instigating reflection on where, where you are in the hobby and, and if that's the right pathway for you. Well, speaking of introspection, um, have you listened to Model Rail Radio a while, or are you a relatively new listener? I'm a tourist. Yeah, I, I'm relatively new to this whole thing because of uh, I'm good friends with Roger mm-hmm. Chrysler. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. He live far, yeah, he doesn't live far from me, and so we've been we've been talking about it. And, and Roger was one of the clinicians on my virtual RPM that we did, and, and so we've been we've talked about it a number of times. And I just haven't really had the time to sort Fair of dive enough. into figuring cool. out what this is. Well, welcome. It's wonderful to have you on. The notion of a what is kind of commonly called a shelf layout, but one that has a lot of operating interest and a lot of history. I mean, you're ticking all those boxes. You mentioned getting back into the hobby roughly a decade ago. Has it been a decade worth of building on your layout, or did you do some research initially and then built the layout? How did that work out time-wise? No. Um, so when I started back into the hobby, I didn't have. I lived in a different house that I'm in now, and, and I didn't have a space to, to build a layout. And, and our basement space was kind of a living space and I wasn't confident in my abilities to build something that wasn't going to be so obtrusive into that space that it would make the living space uncomfortable. So I joined a club, the Waterloo Region uh, Model Railroad Club. I was uh, a member there for a good five years and all of my blogging was in the context of, of, of the modeling that I was doing with that club. And uh, at the same time I was developing, I was doing this, this sort of hypothetical if I had my own home layout, what would it be, right? Because the club layout is a very specific prototype um, uh, project. And uh, and so I would, you know, fantasize about, well, what would I be building if I if I had some space? And I came up with this with, with this notion of this North Tonawanda-based um, one-town kind of layout. And then we had an employment situation change and, and we moved. And, uh, and, then, and then we moved back, like very quickly, shortly after we moved – uh, we had a, a change of fortunes and we had to come back. And so when we came back, we moved into a house with a basement and I started, uh, I started building this layout. I would say it was, well, we've been in this house now for, it'll be seven years in September. Okay. And 
you know, I think the first, the first year or so it was just preparing the space down here. So mm. seven years have I been, no, six years, maybe I've been working on this layout. Like it's not, I'm not, I'm not working very quickly on it because I get distracted by, you know, writing, uh, like I'm trying to pursue writing more articles for craftsmen and, <laughs> and I, you know, I have other demands on my time too. So <laughs> as we all do, right? as we all do. Yeah. Believe yeah. me. <laughs> Well, Hunter, it's been an absolute pleasure to meet you today. It's been wonderful to get a sense of where you're at in the hobby and who you know and this kind of stuff. And I think if you could call back in periodically, it would be wonderful to catch up with you. And also, I think if you have an opportunity to explore the archive of audio, if you kind of abuse the audio, I don't know. I mean, obviously, few people have transit times. But if you have time to listen to audio, it would be wonderful to get your sense of the the back catalogue and have a chat with you about some of the topics and ideas that have come through this particular recording but thank you very much for calling in today a real pleasure to meet you thanks for having me it was a lot of fun i'd like to welcome back on simon hill well simon a lot has been going on in recent weeks i took a week off myself what has been going on with the model railroading hobby and what is the situation with the lockdown restrictions uh, any changes associated with your local crew? What's been going on? With the lockdown, we're still the same, really, although they have uh, eased it a bit over here, and uh, you've probably seen people have just got mad over here, so we're we're still bunkered down. But, um, yeah, been very busy, been working on the gantry crane, um, seen some pictures of that, but uh, I'll put that aside for a while because the next few stages involve Neil, um, and Neil's busy doing some drawing work for the 3D printing at the moment. Uh, but I've been started on a craftsman kit this week and uh, had quite a good uh, Zoom meeting with Marty because a lot of the techniques for painting and weathering are a bit alien to me, mm. um, based around acrylics, whereas my world of painted metal using uh, cellulose and enamel paints, that's second nature to me. Uh, it is interesting, looking... the distinctions between the two, because certainly I was raised on enamel painting and came to acrylics a bit later, but now acrylics dominate everything that I touch. So I am interested in this commercial place. Would it be better for bringing on Mr. Coombs himself to, to participate in this discussion? He's also on. So, Martin, if you want to bring up your audio too, I am fascinated by this movement from Hello. acrylics to enamel. I'd like to welcome on Martin Coombs. So, Martin, how do you see the distinction between, as Simon was saying, you know, working on non-acrylics, let's call them that, to acrylics? What, what do you see in the distinctions and what have you been assisting Simon with associated with this kind of stuff? Uh, acrylics is for me is speed uh they dry quickly which also can be uh, a problem uh so uh, although they're fast drying which means you can get on and move through a project when you're using multi-colors i tend to use uh, some retarder in there to stop them going mm-hmm. off too quickly Certainly. because with weathering it's the workability i mean i still weather i still use enamels for weathering especially if i want something that i need a bit more working time so it doesn't go off and because enamels you can paint and you can leave even five and ten minutes and you can still go back with a neat brush or white spirit and start removing them Absolutely. and manipulating them yes uh, and the acrylics yeah it, it's handy for sort of getting lots of colors on in a particular area whereas when you've used enamels quite often you've got to wait quite a while before they dry before you can move on with the next colour, which for me loses a bit of spontaneity in the sort of painting because I'm I look at painting stuff from uh, an artistic mm-hmm. perspective. So I'm used to working quite quickly, mixing colours up on the fly. Yes. Uh, I don't need a lot of pre-mixed colours. 
Do you do I, things I like wet blending with acrylics? I mean, do you use the full yes. scope? Okay. Can you talk a little bit yeah. about that? Because, I mean, you could potentially do it with enamels, but it would be kind of dangerous, whereas acrylics, you can do wet blending. Talk a little bit about this technique. The blending on that, what I, I tend to use with the enamels, I, I use uh, pre-mixed car screen wash for thinning them down and blending them in and just working them in. Uh, and it's, I also use uh, a method which is where you do the, oh, I can't remember what it's called now, the pre-shading, where I would airbrush on the, the, the uh, black in the shaded areas. Certainly, yes. Uh, first as, as an under, under layer on the primer. And then I put the top coat on, but not at full strength, mm. uh, but as very light coats. So there's some sort of slight translucency to it so that the, the under uh, pre-shading starts to show through very subtly. And it's, it's a lot easier to do it that way than to do it the other way around by adding the shadow to the top because it's harder to sort of blend neatly. And, and also just pure airbrush weathering doesn't really work for me because it's too uniform Certainly. in its gradation. And yes. you can tell a purely airbrushed weathering job straight away but I, i'm moving more and more towards uh using the base colors with the acrylics uh and blending them as needed i blend most of it on the palette and then just apply it and just gradually build up on the brush but for weathering now i'm really quite getting into these things called oil brushes have you come across those uh, i think I, yes yeah. they are uh, finer uh, brushes basically with less bristles and these kind of things or are they that they're uh it's uh mig uh, yes, them. and uh, they almost look like a lady's mascara type mm-hmm. of tube. If you think about that and that long, okay. uh, with a handle. twist. So, yeah, with a very, no, very small brush on the end, mm-hmm. and and the top of these uh, oil brushes, they have uh, the oil paint uh, with less oil in it, as it were. And the as you pull the brush out, if the top of the sort of the bottle container has a ring that just really takes off the excess. Mm-hmm. So you just have a small amount. So then you just dab the full strength of the oil paint uh, in the rough areas where you want it to work from. Then get a flatty brush, dip it in some white spirit, or you can use oil uh, oil brush thinners. Get most of it off on a bit of kitchen roll, and then just touch and work and drag the uh, oil paint in vertical strokes. Mm. And it's incredible the sort of the blending and streaking mm-hmm. you can get. Uh, and, and you can just keep reducing it and reducing it until you've got the effect you want. If you need a bit more, you just dab. It's, it's a little little drop you're putting on. It, it's easier than using – I mean, I've used the conventional way of using oils. We used to squeeze them out of a tube, put them on a bit of card for a while, <laughs> just to soak out a lot of the oil. Yes. Otherwise, you get too much oil. But these oil brushes are nice, and they come in really, really useful colors for, for weathering, mm. and, and they come in different ranges. So uh, they've, they've not been out – Probably about a year or two now, I think, when they first came out. Uh, but I've, in, I've enjoyed using those, so I tend to move that way at the moment uh, with the acrylic side of things. I but, feel that uh, we've, acrylic- we've, we've hijacked things here a little, Martin. I feel that we probably can get into more of this. In terms of the assistance with Simon, can you talk about some of the techniques that you've been working with him on? Yeah, it was, uh, it was primarily uh, the MDF uh, laser-cut brickwork. Mm-hmm. And the, I mean, there's many ways of doing it, but people have all got different, different ways of doing it. But my preferred way at the moment is I use, uh, we've got a, a local car spares company in the UK called Halfords, mm. and they do a range of primers, uh, which are basically a red primer, a gray primer, uh, and there's a white primer. 
and they also do a matte black paint. Mm. Uh, and I I tend to first hit the the uh, brickwork, not 90 degrees, but at an angle so you don't fill up the engraved courses, but in very light coats of the red primer. And then uh, probably two or three very light coats so it seals it off. And it'll be uh, quite a bright red primer finish, uh, but you don't need to panic about that. And then I'll hit it again with little splashes of the grey primer mm. and little areas of the matte black paint, just misting it ever so slightly. <laughs> and what that gives you is, is some variance across the whole sheet of colour. And you let that go off, and it goes off pretty quick. You can use a hair I use a hairdryer quite often if I'm a bit impatient to, mm. to get it to go off quickly. Uh, and then I leave it to go off. You can then use some acrylics and then start picking out individual bricks and stuff. But for me, life's too short to worry about doing that. Uh, <laughs> and so then what I do is I grout it. I, I, I used to use DAS modeling clay, the mm-hmm. air dry clay, thinned down mm-hmm. uh, my fingers and smeared that in and took it off. But I found it was took a lot of work taking it off. So what I now use, we have uh, in the UK, I, I I think you call it something we call it polyfiller effectively. Mm-hmm. So filling mm-hmm. fine cracks in walls Certainly. yes. In, in doors fine. Well it comes that they do a very fine one that comes in a ready mixed tube. Mm. So what I do is I, I put a about a pea size squirt of that on a bit of plastic and then I I have the acrylics. I use I use the Vallejo mm-hmm. range of acrylics that come in these nice little bottles with the yeah, like eye dropper bottles. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Exactly that. And then I drop uh, a couple of uh, of the sort of concretey type colours into the filler mm-hmm. and, and mix it up, but I don't mix it uh, perfectly. I, I leave it so it's a bit streaky and a bit not fully mixed. And then with a very fine spatula knife, I just spread that across all the mm-hmm. brickwork and it fills in all the mortar courses. So, in terms of the actual, the polyfiller itself has a consistency. You're not really watering down the consistency of the polyfiller other than adding the acrylic paint. So it is exactly basically that. maintaining yeah. roughly the same consistency. Yeah, because, if, you thin yeah. It, if you thin it down, it'll just wash through and, and drain out. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I just do that. And then I, I have a plastic spatula, which I then just gently scrape across the brick surface to get the worst of it off. Mm-hmm. And then I just have uh, one of those natural sponges, mm-hmm. which I just dab in water. And then I, I take it across at 45 degrees mm-hmm. rather than following the courses. Otherwise, you'll drag it out of the courses. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. Interesting. You just, gently, you just gently take it off with that and then let that go off. And then you can come back a while later with some, uh, like a scratch brush mm. if you want to take a bit more off. And then when I'll go back and then I'll hit it with the weathering pencils mm-hmm. that add streaking and weathering and maybe some slight area shading. Uh, and that is done for me. Uh, so the weathering I mean, pencils are the point where people that still advocate going back and finding, I guess, highlight bricks or what have you. You're basically yeah. doing that similarly with weathering pencils, but just covering more areas and breaking up any degree of uniformity. Because as you describe it, you've got a large color palette already, starting with the reds and then, you know, well, the red, the gray, you know, you're moving through a variety of colors, which will give, you know, additional kind of background color texture for want of a better term and then you put in the grout which adds more texture but also a color shift and you put the pencils over that which enables you to i guess pick out areas to do slightly differently so it breaks up you're kind of mottling the you know the eye being drawn to uniform patterns through that so interesting and then do you do i mean at what stage do you consider it done you've obviously got to put additional washes potentially and other things at this stage uh it's probably uh, 
you have to look at it. You have to put it away sometimes and then come back to it. <laughs> uh, but then time you've added pipe work, doors, mm-hmm. windows, Gosh. and, you know, and bracketry, the associated streaking of the sort of the uh, dark sort of black rain streaks. And then there, you'll have the green where there's a bit of mold yep, uh, and stuff like that. So you add a few bits of those. And when you think you haven't done enough, that's the time to stop. Okay, interesting. But, you don't want but to overdo it. Interesting. No, but, but the beauty of watercolour pencils is if you do, just go at it with a brush dipped in water and remove it. Mm. So it's it's for an overall effect, I think it works pretty well. And, and I wouldn't want to spend too long doing it because you just, you just get a bit bored of it <laughs> and, and you can get too zoned in. And if you go too much, it, you, you must look at it as an overall picture. Yes. Yes. You, you've got to factor in everything else. There's no point having this immaculately modelled brick wall <laughs> if the rest of the modelling doesn't stand up to it as well. So, it, And, of course, the, the, again, with the, the acrylics, the pencils, the oil, burning, the oil brushes, I use that on stock as well. Mm. So it for me, it's important to use the same tonal palettes and, and colors and techniques across everything yeah. because everything weathers from the same point you know it, it might meander a little bit down a brickwork but it'll come straighter down the side of a loco or a wagon or something yes. but it's still the same muck it's going <laughs> to land on the building or or on the ground or, yes. or on a loco so it makes sense and that unifies everything then stuff doesn't sort of stand out and jar because you can have one thing wrong and it'll just stand out yes. to someone. And so it's, uh, yeah, that's, that's, yeah, it was, it was really just the, on the, and it was easier to do a Zoom meeting because I had, because uh, I had done tests and trials and things and I'd kept all those tests and trials in a box just for reference. And it was handy to sort of show Simon because yes. I found out on Zoom, I could link my phone. Yes. and share the phone camera. Yes. So that that was a lot easier. So when I was showing him, I could actually get in close and, and see the picture rather than trying to hold it up in front of your face on the uh, on your Certainly. normal sort of webcam type of thing. And the quality, uh, I mean, the phone cameras now, particularly with regards to kind of microscopic, I mean, it's amazing the kind of quality you can get out of a phone if it's actually you know, properly focused and what have you. So you're probably oh, dealing with a superior product anyway. I did want to throw back to Simon. We were talking yep. to him initially. I'll come back to you later in the call, Martin, but That's I wanted to throw back to Simon. So yep. thank you I'll for uh, passing on the techniques. <laughs> Simon, sorry about that. No, <laughs> you're welcome. We had That's benefit. So look, Martin has given a very, I mean, obviously Martin is completely expert in this thing. What did you take from Martin's presentation? Are you using all his techniques? Are you using a subset of his techniques? Talk a little bit about how you're going to do things. Well, I think you've seen the building work that Martin's done on the yard and other buildings, so that's the sort of effects we'd like to achieve, and then it keeps it the same. As Martin said, the same palette of colours will be used on the rest of the layer. Um, things that come away from the chat from me was obviously uh, the mortar. When you see a lot of buildings on layouts, it's so white, it stands out. It's yes. just the brickwork shining, and that's, yes. that's, that's not the effect we want. So... One of the things that Martin was toning down the mortar colours, not just using one colour, but variations of colour. Um, and that's very important. I mean, just looking at my brick wall, it's like a creamy mortar, uh, but the variations in bricks that go from a bright red oxide to a dark grey. Mm. And it's quite a mishmash of colours. But what I don't want to do is, as Martin said, spend forever doing a brickwork. <laughs> yes, you can do this like, type of pendant, exquisite models, but I don't want to spend a year doing one building. It's just fitting that illusion into that part of the layout. And obviously the bits that are closest to the edge of the layout will have a little bit more detail and then it gets to the back 
I can cut a few corners. But just trying to learn the techniques. I've, been, I've had a look at um, various YouTube demos and things, but it's, a lot of them are so long-winded, it's mm. probably easier just to <laughs> buy the stuff and have a play. And that's what I've done today. Martin gave me a link, and I've ordered some a, a cross-spectrum of different bits and bobs just to, tr- to get it to play and see how I act with the various um, uh, equipment. Also, my airbrushes, they are quite old now, whether they will cope with... The, the more modern equipment, I'm not sure yet, but we'll have a go. I mean, it's like anything you learn by playing with this stuff. And Absolutely. it's the good, th- good thing is because it's all water based, you're not really going to do too much damage. And <laughs> I, I can play about, I've got so many different scraps because at the moment, most of the buildings on the layout are all in the, the natural finish white if it's mm. um, PVC embossed, um, wood color, um, and plastic card. So I want to try starting to get some colours onto it. So starting with this building is probably easier because one flank wall of it is at the back of that, so you can't see it, and that's the wall to practice on. Mm. So master, master the technique. And it is an art. I mean, Martin's way of looking at things is from an artist. My way of looking at things is like from a two-dimensional, very engineered basis. And I, you know, when it says mix red, I mix red, and I apply red, I don't look <laughs> at all the tonal colours around it. So, yes. Um, but, I mean, doing it via Zoom is so easy at the moment because instead of going to see somebody, we can do exactly the same, sitting in your own workshop, looking at it and taking notes. So I think that's that's where we are with that. I mean, and what Martin's looking at also is um, Neil's currently developing um, these pipe fittings. We had a, another chat about it, and uh, Martin can talk about it a bit more later, but we Neil was more inclined to look at the prototype fittings as against, well, the drawer fitting up that looks right. So he's done a few tests, which you, I think you saw last time, and now he's gone away and he's redrawing them all mm. to match the prototype. And again, this the, the weathering techniques Martin wants to play about with, and I, I'm going to use a lot of that piping on the layer as well. So getting the grounding with that would be very good. Um, but it's, there's so much going on at the moment as well. The um, I think I talked a little while ago about the Gajo Guildwork going to host a sort of virtual exhibition mm. um, as their main show has been cancelled now at long last. I mean, it's like this uh, end of August and they've waited so late to cancel mm. it, but they have now. So I volunteered to do a clinic, uh, something to do with metal yet. They haven't decided what I'll be doing. <laughs> but <laughs> That sounds like your metal. wheelhouse though, right? They, they know your wheelhouse basically historically and uh, that seems like a good topic for you to do. Well, they're going very lightly at the moment with it. They don't want to make it too bigger project they just want to get a few people together various recorded live mm. stuff um going to try and include traders as well so they can link websites etc but i uh, looking at what we did with martin about linking another phone to get a better camera gives an overall better display of what you're doing because you can actually talk about something and show it and point to it whereas when you're doing face to face through the screen i think that's the very difficult bit um and i was looking on the MRX today, some of the stuff there. Yeah, there's a lot of it's good and a lot of it's pre-prepared. Um, it all boils down to the quality of the, the line. Some of it was quite breaking up. Mm. Um, so, I mean, what, we've done a, a test over here so far and the line's been very good because I think it's only going to be within the UK where the participants are. Mm. So, Although you don't yeah. know that. I mean, that's what's interesting. You know, I've talked with Mike Slater about Trainfest moving digitally, which they announced a, a week or so ago. And you don't know, I mean, the, I don't know if it's called the O-Scale National, I've, I've heard 
it, it's probably different than the 16 millimeter, or is it the same thing as the 16 millimeter? Well, it's run by the Gajo Guild Society, so. Okay, so I'm not sure whether there's, yeah. anyway. But that is one of the uh, conventions in the UK that I've always wanted to attend. Now, the fact that they're doing it virtually now, I wouldn't eliminate the fact that there might be a bunch of international folk that just jump aboard this thing because it's available. So you'd hope maybe initially for the stuff that you're discussing that it would be a, a local community, but I wouldn't necessarily assume that. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I know the 16 mil society are looking at something as well because mm. uh, obviously they've lost their show, but I think they're all hoping that, you know, come next year, everything's going to be jumping back to normal. Well, I think we should err on caution with this and Definitely. look at other ways at the moment. But looking at the response from people that have been a bit alien to looking at um, Facebook, YouTube, mm. uh, Zoom, I think they are coming around to it because they're seeing the benefit of interacting with people. And that's one of the things I made clear when they asked me. I said, it's got to be interactive. I don't just want to do a blank presentation with no feedback because that defeats the object for me because it's about talking to people. Mm putting over techniques, asking people, what do you think about that? How do you do it? And then going through it with them. There's a lot, for some reason, soldering to a lot of people seems very complicated. Mm. And and they have an awful lot of trouble. Do you think there was a golden age of soldering? Because, I mean, certainly as a boy, soldering was something that I was, I mean, although there were a small number of us, but it was something that we were taught. My school friend, became a, a NASA-level soldering instructor in his late teens because he was so obsessed with soldering. But do you think this is a skill that has just been lost over time and now it's alien to people? I mean, I'm assuming you started soldering when you were very young. Absolutely. I mean, it was part of my metalwork uh, course at school, mm. um, and it was using fairly big traditional soldering irons that went in a flame, <laughs> uh, fairly big plumber's solder, yes. some really corrosive, nasty fluxes. But looking at what we do now, we've got a cross-spectrum of very sophisticated solders in various temperatures. Certainly. You've got some really good fluxes that aren't aggressive in any way. And also the quality of the soldering irons Amazing. has improved leaps and bounds. Yeah. Um, the ones that Martin and I use are very small. The, the actual handle is no bigger than a pencil. Yes. But it, it, it whacks 450 degrees and it's 100 watts. The good thing about that is you're not holding such a heavy iron that deflects what you're trying to do. Whereas the big irons used to hold like a scaffolding pole with mm. a massive great uh, tip. Also, people seem to be a bit wary of things that are hot. So I think there's a lot of people worried about health and safety, how, you know, you mustn't do this, solder's bad for you, the fumes. Well, today you get lead-free uh, solder. Mm-hmm. The flux is fairly inert, so there's no corrosive fumes coming off of it. Yes, it's still advisable to have a, an extraction system because there are still, whatever material you use, there's yes. still fumes. And when I did a few demos many years ago, People were surprised that using the ionized using, making sure everything is scrupulously clean, how easily things soldered, and using the, the barest degrees of solder to aid what you're trying to solder to, um, based going from like a white metal solder up to 250 degree solder. They all have a use. So mm. you can use sort of cascade them as the things get smaller, you go down in size. And of course, then the bigger bits are not going to fall off because you're not imparting too much heat into the item. I mean, yeah, you are right. I mean, the art is is dying, but we've still got a huge amount of manufacturers over here producing 
lots of um, etched kits. Mm. Um, and if you're scratch building, it, it, it's a natural skill anyway, because when you present a model for any photographs, I will try and make sure that there's no solder showing. Definitely. You only put, you know, it's like painting. You're only going to put on what you need. <laughs> and when you see great blobs of solder, you know, yes, for some parts that are inside, a, say, a tank where you want a bit of strength to build up a joint, fine, but any external solder shouldn't be visible. Yes. And, of course, that's then down to the, the you know, scrupulous cleaning. <laughs> which you know you, you learn after a while it is an interesting skill I, just in talking to you it reminded me i have my grandfather soldering iron and certainly my grandfather soldering with my grandfather was one of my childhood joyous experiences because the technology was changing and i was able to show him you know new fluxes as you say i also showed him you know cleaning techniques in fact the soldering iron that i inherited is one that i helped him purchase based on as you say him having a really old jurassic soldering iron <laughs> and then moving into something that uh, is newer. It's an interesting skill. I think people should just, particularly in this hobby, there's so many uses of soldering just in terms of the electrical side of things as well. It may be benefit to, you know, if you if you aren't soldering currently, perhaps consider. Um, and just, I mean, in terms of when you come to teach these kind of techniques, do you have any advice for people that are interested in getting into soldering or at least understanding how it works and getting some basic techniques together? I think the first technique I would say is make sure you always buy a good soldering iron. Don't go for a cheap soldering iron. That's Certainly. a mistake a lot of people do yeah. because I think I was surprised with the latest soldering iron I got where it, it actually senses the amount of heat required in the metal. So mm. as soon as you touch the iron onto the metal, you see it drop slightly and then it compensates it by pumping more power in. Yes. With the cheaper irons, obviously – as soon as you touch that metal, that drains away the power, the, the heat source drains away. So you then got to wait for everything to heat up very slowly. The quality of the, the solder is important. Um, in the soft solders, we're very well catered for with the modeling industry. There's quite a good cottage industry producing uh, the solders. To be honest, the best solder is the leaded solders because they do flow well. And unfortunately, that's the downside in that you then need um, the extraction system because it is nasty stuff. The fluxes. So it's, it's like a, um, it's like when you calculate fire, what you need to create fire. It's the same with soldering. It's <laughs> got to be scrupulously clean, yes. a good flux and a good heat source. That's, you know, the key elements. And I try to entice people to have a go at the, the demonstrations to, to try it. And they, you know, they were surprised. And I, I know now there's, uh, the Gajo Guild do a demonstration where you can actually take part at their, their main shows where I think for a, a small fee, you get a, a very basic brass wagon kit. Mm. You get an instructor for a couple of hours, and it, they take you through the various elements. Um, but, you know, it's like a lot of things. It's it's Once you've bitten into it, it's so easy. <laughs> yes. And, you know, it's part of that hobby where you can create something yourself. I mean, you get more enjoyment out of it. And when you do a good job on soldering, it, it's, you know, it's enjoyable. Certainly. Certainly. Well, if you've learned anything, listener, from this uh, particular discussion with Simon, go out, find yourself a, a reasonably priced multi-temperature iron, and, uh, yeah, start soldering. <laughs> so, Simon, in terms, of, uh, in terms of other aspects of the hobby, anything else to update, anything else going on um, that you, uh, you want to draw attention to? Really just cracking on with the layout. Um, lots. One of the things we talked to Martin about keeping motivated, um, in, in lockdown, I think what I've been tending to do now is I, I take 
take each week separately and give it a separate project. Yes. So this week has been the building and being wood. I'm, I'm not a great lover of wood, but it's nice to sort of open a box and you haven't got to think because everything's done for you. Mm. Um, I know the next project will be getting back into the gantry crane. Mm. Um, and then from that, I will probably go back onto some of the 16mm models. Cause that, the 16mm models to me are better to do in the winter because um, I can spend a lot of time at drawing board and machining. Yes. Um, and also... One thing I found I needed this week was I didn't have any dedicated area in the workshop for doing the sort of DCC loco installs, mm. any fault finding or tracing. So I've actually cleared a bench space and set up a separate DCC controller. So I've got one area that's permanently set up now because it's very frustrating when you've got to clear all the junk off the Certainly. worktop. Oh, yeah. <laughs> To get the DCC bits out. That was one of the calculations you made when you built your layout was that you'd lose a certain amount of space, which historically you would have had a lot of, you did have a lot of machines and other things already in the space. But it is interesting the way you were, you, you lost a bit of space with the layout, right? Well, I had two of exactly the same lathes. And one of the, 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 the bugbears was this smaller lathe wasn't being used. So I dismantled it. I just put it away for the moment. Um, the other one's a cabinet mounted lathe, so I can't dismantle that one. But it's a better quality. So if ever I need to use the other lathe again, it's easy enough to set up. Mm. But it, it gives me that space where I can leave the, the current sort of building uh, bench as it is and just move around onto the other side of the workshop. And so far, you know, I've been playing around with it and it, it does, it's paying dividends. Um, I've spent quite a bit of time cleaning all the machinery up as well because like a lot of things, you tend to use them and you don't service them. So I've spent a week coming around servicing all the machinery, uh, getting covered in swarf and oil, which is, I love, I love the smell of that anyway. Um, <laughs> But, you know, I'm tracing a bit of electrical faults every time I switch it on. It tripped all the breakers out in the house. I ran up and down to in the house and the workshop. And because uh, it was a three phase motor, I needed a bit of help with that. So I had to ring up a mate in Devon and he, he gave me some advice on that. But it's all working again now. Wonderful. A lot of this machinery, when you leave it alone and don't use it, then you get these little gremlins creep in. Definitely. So but it's all up and getting working now. So cool. I'm happy, Bunny. And the workshop smells nice again. Very good. Very good. Yeah, I'm anticipating, I mean, certainly through the lockdown period, our garden has gotten a good amount of love as well. And I always liked your garden as a kind of, you know, southern English country garden in some regard. Is the garden looking good? You, is your wife spending more time in the garden? Are you doing any honeydews in the garden as well? Oh, crikey, we're out there every morning having breakfast. And then the t- <laughs> tomatoes are five oh, foot tall. <laughs> um, they're loaded again because we had a really nice early summer. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's looking really good. Plenty Wonderful. of veg coming on. Flowers Wonderful. is good. Terrific. Uh, but that's, that's detracted time from the workshop, isn't it? <laughs> I guess so. I guess so. But look, fresh tomatoes, God sent anyway, so I wouldn't be complaining with any of these things. So I'm pleasure catching up. Please stay on the line. We will we'll have Martin on. No doubt there might be some uh, topics that you could jump in on that as well, but real pleasure catching up. Thank you, I'd like to welcome back on Martin Coombs. Martin, aside from helping Simon with regards to uh, painting technique and Zoom meetings and things, what's been going on with the model railroading hobby in you? All oh, right. Well, just before we go on to that, I just a uh, few things on Simon said on soldering. Certainly. Uh, uh, with the soldering, a, a lot of it is fear with people that they read, especially with white metal, they read about, oh, you can't have this too hot or you'll melt the parts of the kit, and, which is the situation I was in. Mm. Uh, and it came to a point where Simon said to me, are you actually going to build any of those kits? And I said, well, I'm not sure which way to go about it. If you Shame. use this, it's going to yeah. melt. And, and yeah. <laughs> so he said, come around the workshop, 
we'll have a couple of hours and we'll go through it. And he did. And I've never looked back. You, you just need to get stuck in and, uh, and have the right tools and cleanliness and stuff like that. But yeah, I just wanted to say rather than put off and keep thinking about it, just do it. Yes. Learn by your mistakes and, and you'll be away. Once you've cracked it, 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 it's great. There's no fear to it at all. And, and, you know, I followed him with the, the, uh, so soldering irons. We got the flux pen he found out about mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Uh, and the techniques, it, it, it is, it is so easy to do. It's unbelievable yes. once, once you know the way of doing it. But yeah, I just wanted to add that, uh, onto his bit. But, uh, and, I mean, in terms of, I mean, I, we have a lot of lone wolf listeners and my mm-hmm. perspective with regards to soldering is I don't know what the YouTube offerings are, but just in terms of technique, there are so many little basic techniques that you can get just with, you know, wire and solder and, you're practicing wire, you know, soldering wires together and then practicing, you know, soldering, you know, flat bits of metal together. I mean, there are a bunch of different little bits and pieces that you could probably do on your own. Although it's wonderful to have someone that's already, you know, advanced in knowledge and could give you uh, pointers. It shouldn't eliminate, you know, lone wolf modelers from picking up a soldering iron and just starting experimenting and getting their techniques down, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, the only thing I find with YouTube stuff, as you probably do as well, the actual information you want can be actually put across to you in about a minute. Yes. But you have to wade through <laughs> 10 minutes of yeah. preamble waffle about... I'm like, not advocating on. YouTube here necessarily. Yeah. I think actually a lot but, of the stuff you can probably... Yeah, you can probably yeah. do on your own. I mean, my view with soldering is it's one of those skills, I mean, obviously you could potentially burn yourself and things like that. But once you take mm. a little bit of care and you just try on a variety of different bits and pieces, then you have a, a means of, you know experimenting and refining your technique, which doesn't necessarily require another person or even YouTube here. Yeah, I mean, there's plenty of bits. Well, look at any etch kit. The amount of scrap brass holding all the parts together, there's a plentiful supply of practice stuff. And and the white metal kits, they're, they're all on sprues and, and bits and pieces. Uh, and that's how I, t- I used to set the iron up. I used to just hold the iron and just keep adjusting it until it just started to melt the white metal and knocked it back a little bit and then found, you know, the iron set, you're never going to melt the kit. So it, there's, there's quite a few techniques, but, uh, yeah, practice, get stuck in there and, uh, start building. That's the best way. Wonderful. <laughs> so in terms of your update, what's news uh, with you? The, well, Simon said is just trying to get motivated was that some of the problems, but the, the garden line, I've, I've had mm. to sort of think, right, I need to crack on with this. So I, these scratch built buffer stops I spoke about last time I've now installed. There's quite a bit of overgrowth now on the line. We've had some good weather here, mm. uh, but I've not been able to extend the line because it's waiting on some pathways to be done mm-hmm. uh, before I can do it. And then the pathways are waiting for an 18 inch, 40 foot long trench to be dug because uh, I'm having, I'm putting in new power lines into the workshops, mm. uh, having those beefed up, uh, and I've just it, it got to the week. We just had a week of very hot weather here. The week before that, I just decided, no, enough's enough. Let's get this trench dug. So, what I've done, I've lifted all of the 40 foot pathway up to the uh, workshops and cleared all of that. Got ready to dig the trench for the cables to go in uh, and that's when the hot weather started so i thought i'm not doing that anymore in that weather so i put that to one side so once it cools i mean this next week this week coming up it's a bit cooler so i'll get the trench dug get the cables in then i can start putting the paving down then i can put the rest of the railway in and then do the seating area and barbecue area that my wife wants in the middle of it all and stuff like that but you, you, i keep thinking about it keep putting it off and i just decided no get on and do it so that's what's uh, happened with the garden. I've cut the the uh, for the turntable. I've had to cut some timbers that are slightly higher 
mm. than I had for the track before because I couldn't get the turntable to sit low enough purely because of all the structure I've got underneath it. Mm. And it was only a few millimeters, so I've I've made a an angled grade up for the entry track into the turntable, and the 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 engine sheds and the coaling roads are all at the the higher level. So I've cut the timbers and I've creosoted them all, so they're all ready. Uh, the turntable's been painted. It just needs the matte varnish seal, but I haven't been able to get the matte varnish without some palaver we have to go through here at the moment to actually get anything and pick it up. Hmm. Uh, and although it's, you see, click and collect is great, and it's click and collect, but you can't get it until tomorrow. Hmm. And then you have to go off. Oh, I'll give up. Anyway, I found it on Amazon. <laughs> and, uh, it, it, it's arriving tomorrow. Very good. <laughs> so I can matte varnish the turntable and then start getting the engine shed area sorted out on, on the line as well. So I've also been working on the, uh, the Swift 16 five coach set in 16 mil I've been building, which I can't remember. I said I was probably laser cutting the seat ends last time and the floor. I think, area, showed, so. yeah, I think you showed photos. So seem more yeah. than the cut. I've seen it actually laid out. So, yeah. All right. But all the seats are painted now. Uh, and I'm now painting the interiors to the coaches because there's five of them. To be honest, it just gets a bit boring after a while, so you can only do an hour or two. <laughs> yes. I ordered uh, some 3D printed figures for the Interesting. occupants. Interesting. There was, a, there was a company here, it's quite a newish 3D printing company, that was doing an offer of 10 figures for 50 quid. Gosh. And they're, they're not resin uh ones they're more of the layered plastic mm-hmm. so they don't bear close scrutiny but these are going to be in the coaches certainly behind glazing and just there for effect so i thought for that money uh that was pretty good and in fact they're not that bad mm. so I'm, I'm quite pleased with those i thought that's quite a, quite a good little buy so Wonderful. i'm priming those up and getting those done so and then i've got 70 odd windows to cut out which i haven't worked out the best way of doing that yet but mm. uh, i'll work on that one what else happened? Uh, the club. Oh, our club isn't really going to open much before September, if then. Yes. Because of the lockdown things and because of the site we're on is with the village hall. And the village hall has overall say and, and they're not having anything. Certainly. I doubt we're getting the club this year. Although we were given special permission uh, from the village hall committee to go in and pick up a couple of baseboards for Ken. Mm. So he can work on one of the club layouts at home. He just needs these two baseboards. So yes. we went there yesterday uh, and we were allowed to get the boards so we can work on them at home. So that was good. Mm. Oh, Kent Garden Rail we touched on last time. Uh, they are, have now confirmed they are going to be online only. Oh, interesting. So that has now been confirmed. Interesting. But re- there is the possibility of collection that can be arranged as well. So, so they're, still, they're keeping the location, or are they moving yeah, to well, a different location for collection? He's moving about 30 foot. I don't know if you, <laughs> you, you, you remember, he, he has that shop on the corner. Certainly. Then next to it was an antique shop. I don't know if you remember. I kind of do, yeah. And then next to that is another empty shop. That's his old shop. Oh, okay. Interesting. So he has that. So he's going to move the whole project back into the much smaller original shop. Interesting. And then he'll let the end shop go. And then he's going to run it as, as uh, mail order and collection for locals. We do have a facility. Our club secretary can, as an arrangement, he can collect for us mm. as, as a thing anyway. But uh, I'm sure as time goes on, the collection side of it will ease and, and things will be a lot freer. Uh, but it is available for us. So we, we've got a good, uh, plentiful supply of, of stuff. Wonderful. On our doorstep, which is really useful. Oh, Bredgar, that's not going to open this year. That The decision has right. been made. Uh, yeah. they, they can't operate it. They can't see a way of operating it. question, yeah. To, to do the social distancing 
and primarily to, a, to protect the visitors and us as the volunteers, sure. but also they're saying it wouldn't be good value for visitors because yes. they could, we wouldn't be able to enjoy it to its fullest extent. So the easiest thing was just right off the year. So uh, it, it's not going to be till next year yeah. that that will happen again, which is makes sense, to be Certainly. honest. Uh, we had an experience. Uh, we had my sister-in-law come and stay with us. She left on Tuesday. We went to yeah. the beach, right? Um, I spent five minutes on the sand and said, this thing is too, for a start, there was no social distancing. <laughs> I was wearing a mask. The weather wasn't brilliant, but it, the whole thing seemed really surreal. And I, my view is that you'll find that this is going to take a lot longer for people just psychologically. Now, California has had a spike recently, quite a large spike. Uh, my suspicion is for a variety of factors, it's things like, now, this was a state beach, which meant we had to pay $10 to get onto it to start off with. So they didn't even have the restrictions that the local beaches had. But when we got there, the whole thing was just so surreal. And thankfully, my wife and sister-in-law came off the beach pretty soon after I came off the beach. We were all sitting in the car, just thinking, yeah, we're not going to be doing this anytime soon. So <laughs> my view is that actually there's going to be a really, there's an interesting shift that's already occurred associated with how people view these spaces and to be frank a lot of people with young kids and what have you they just obviously needed to get out for you know if you live in a small apartment with a couple of kids i have a co-worker in that circumstance i can understand completely in some regard but i think the the changes that have existed in people's own psychology through this period are going to take a long time before you know we see you know large groups without masks and you know social distancing and a variety of other factors i think the risks are still too great, unfortunately. Yeah, well, you wouldn't believe it here, though. Uh, we just had it this because the weather's been good. The pictures at Bournemouth Beach are horrendous. Yeah, there's absolutely no no social distancing whatsoever. So I can I, I would I'm expecting in a couple of weeks to be a spike. Yeah, uh, in things, but uh, it's I'm sure the government's going to have to crack in and shut the beaches down because it's it's just got a bit silly. Uh, but uh, only time will tell. Yeah, it's it's most peculiar. So, uh, in terms of, I mean, in terms of actually maintaining breadcar, though, what is going to happen? I mean, obviously, if you shut things down for you know six months plus, you've got a bunch of locomotives that still require a certain degree of servicing and these kind of things. Is there any discussion associated with how that will work? Yeah, well, there's a small team already down there who uh, who are looking after and keeping it ticking over. <clears throat> They've postponed all the boiler inspections because there's there's no point this year yeah. uh, because it'll be a waste of a ticket a year of a ticket uh and i would imagine as things because at the moment we've we've gone from uh two meters to one meter distancing uh not that that really means anything in the real world because it's well, still the virus exactly hasn't changed at all it's, it's, no. it's one of those strange things <laughs> is it? the virus hasn't said look hang on let this meet halfway yeah. shall we just, i'll just do a meter you do a meter yes yes you know, this is so i think as it, it, we've got to see, see a consistent drop uh, and once we get to that area, uh, I'm sure they'll have a few more volunteers down there. And there are projects that some of us can do. As Ken was saying the other day, there's all the all the axles boxes that need oiling, mm. uh, which he would normally have done, which he can do on his own, mm. away from anyone. But he said it's a bit pointless anyway, because what's the point of oiling them? <laughs> They're not yeah. really going to go anywhere. Yeah. Uh, there is the track to do. There's a lot of sleepers. There's over 40 sleepers we've got to replace. So it's it's uh, getting to a stage where there's enough confidence and because you need a group, you can't do a sleepers on your own. It's yeah. way too hard. Work. Yeah. So you need a small group of you that can do 
uh, sleep are changing. So I would imagine as months go on and things ease a little bit, we'll start introducing some small working parties on on projects and stuff like that. Uh, but it, it's really we just wait and hear for what the owners say and and go with go with the flow on that. You know, yeah. providing we ourselves feel comfortable. You know, that's it, it. It's also a decision we have to make. You know, people can say, "Oh, you can come down and do this, that, and the other." But if we're not Certainly. comfortable with that, we won't. Certainly. You know. It, it's uh and it has to wait till next i mean the next open day in theory is next easter it's a long time away yes so there's there's you know there's stuff to do but it, it's early days at the moment because stuff is is just evolving and we have in a uh i think it's the fourth of july they're sort of doing it sort of opening up more of the shops and hairdressers and pubs and stuff like that and i notice a lot of the Heritage Railways are starting to show uh, they're going to be open and running. And mm. I suspect we'll, we'll sit back and have a look and just see what starts to happen there. And I think they're all trying to open up the tourist industry yes. you know, to, some, to get some revenue going. Yes. It, it's a balance between health and wealth. Yeah. But that, that's the, the, and it's a tricky balance. And I think now they're putting the emphasis on wealth rather than health. Yes. Uh, we see it here too, and yeah. actually, we see it in very negative light, based on basically gambling. I mean, that's just what it is in some fundamental sense. So, yeah, I'm I'm very mindful. I mean, particularly the tourist industry took a good chunk of my change last year when I came out and visited you folk twice. Um, <laughs> so, I look the, the one thing that I really am missing, and I've heard this from others that are similarly like-minded, you know, international travellers, is the ability to to live vicariously through one's trips in the future and things like that. And I think certainly, yeah, I'm, I'm very mindful of, of your situation, your collective situation with the view that uh, I would love to be one of those visitors to come back and see, you know, Bredgar working at full strength and, you know, Kim Khan Railway's back open. And obviously you guys, you know, seeing each other once again, not over Zoom calls, but actually physically. So, yeah, it, it is an interesting balance between these things. But thank you very much for your... Your update. Anything else, Barton? Are we missing anything before I wrap no, up? No, I you? think I think we've covered everything. I may have to zoom off in a minute because I can Not smell my dinner. <laughs> important <laughs> things. Important things. So, and that's that's back in a bit. It's been great chatting to you, Tom. I'm, I'm going to look out for your piece a little later on. Believe on me. podcasting, you're going to do. I'm looking forward to that. So, yes. uh, I, I have, a, I have a face back. for internet radio, so I'm. Uh, I haven't really done that. I'm not going to wear any makeup or anything, but it could be an interesting expose. So uh, brace yourself. Uh, but yeah, looking forward to it. I'll, 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 I'm going to pour a beer out. Wonderful. And uh, settle down and, and listen. But yeah, great to chat to you, Tom. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure, man. like to welcome on a gentleman who I haven't had the opportunity to chat with for a few years now. Ralph Watson, what has been going on with you and the model railroading hobby? Oh, lots of things. Uh, I retired from my career and I moved to a different state. Gosh. And uh, of course that means, you know, setting up new things and getting new uh, friends and joining new clubs, which uh, there was no woodworking club here in, in Crossville, Tennessee, but there was a wood turning club. Interesting. And despite not having turned anything since junior high school, I joined <laughs> the club. And Wonderful. And I now, now I'm a wood turner. Wonderful. As far as model railroading, um, I brought with me, uh, six, uh, two foot by six foot modules. 
right. uh, various uh, states of construction. The movers didn't totally destroy them, and they're now set up in my train room slash office slash video room slash the hallway, <laughs> uh, you name it. Yes. Uh, in a uh, 12-foot um, long and uh, eight foot wide um, U shape. Mm. So I've got two towns with a connector between them. Um, club wise, uh, the Crossville Model Railroad Club uh, has a, a suite in the local outlet mall. Mm. Uh, we have Z, N, H, O, O, and G. Gosh. All in about 5,000 square feet. Wow. About, about 50 members. And just reopened last weekend for uh, Father's Day weekend. Uh, limited hours, limited uh, staffing, but we're averaging about 60 visitors a day now Gosh. on the three days a week that we are open. So that's interesting. The, the Outlet Mall version of the club has always been something that I've viewed on with particular interest. I mean, here in California, we have these kind of slightly going out of business malls, um, some of them have been lost recently, like they've actually finally bulldozed them down. But there was certainly a number of clubs that operated, and as you say, the foot traffic in these clubs can be something that's quite substantial if, you know, the local cinema is playing particular films and what have you, you'll have an increase in foot traffic. Did you, were you part of the staff for that particular club? Did you see people come through on the three days that it was open? I was uh, on duty yesterday uh, for the first time. Oh, I was a little bit a little bit concerned about meeting John Q. Public, not knowing who they had been around, and, and uh, they didn't know who I'd been around. Yes, the staff is is uh, requested to to wear a face mask at all times, and yes. there's visitors in the center in the uh, suite, and uh, visitors are requested to wear them if they have them. We're not yes. giving them out if they don't. So interesting in terms of the interaction in the times that we're in currently. Was there much Discussion with the John Q. public, as you say, or was it was it just people coming through and observing, or did they have questions as well? Uh, some people were happy to see us open. Uh, they um, missed us the uh, last four months or so, and uh, were happy to to get back in. Other people had never been to us before. A couple people had to be uh, encouraged to come through the door. Mm. Uh, they weren't sure if we were open or not, even though the, the door was standing wide open. We have big signs, you know, don't touch anything, uh, don't sneeze on anybody, that kind of thing. Yes, yes. Interesting. So, okay, you're, you're, you're seeing a return to not necessarily normalcy, but at least people still coming in the club. And the nature of what a model railroad club is or a model railroad show to the non-model railroader is oftentimes lost in this hobby. But it is incredibly important to people. I was talking to some folks associated with the local train show that they had that had closed. And they said no one really understood when the train show stopped coming what it meant to the local community as a whole. So it's interesting that just by having this, uh, you know, club available in the, the strip mall, you give, you know, access to the community to the hobby in a way which is, seems to be very important to them. Yeah. Uh, there's some businesses in the mall that have not uh, survived the, um, mm. the, the lockdown. Uh, the, um, Little sandwich shop right next door to our our suite is gone. Um, a couple other places had planned to close anyway, uh, and so the um, 
there's now been a, 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 a gymnastics cheerleading tumbling mm. uh, sort of camp uh, taken over now some of them all and there's a church in some of the suites and uh, that doesn't generate a lot of foot traffic for the train club though. Mm. Yes. Interesting. Interesting. So in terms of your move, let's talk about that because I think the module community is very strong in suggesting that this is the best way to do the hobby for folks that are going to be moving. And this seems to be your example. I'm pleased that the movers didn't do much damage to your modules. That's always been something that I've experienced when I've moved. But in terms of like the modules and moving the modules and these kind of things, I mean, obviously when you built the modules, you had some sense that you might be moving in the future. Can you talk a little bit about that transition? Well, the modules were uh, a joint project with uh, a group of people in South Carolina that in the uh, Seneca, Greenville, uh, that sort of area, Clemson area. And originally there were going to be eight people with one module each, and then it turned out to be five people and some of them with two modules. And then some of the, you know, I ended up somehow with six modules and all the other people quit doing it. <laughs> interesting, interesting. So some of <laughs> but, these modules uh, were acquired through other people as well, or did you just end up starting with six? No, there was a there was a an accumulation period. Uh, as people dropped out, um, they sold or donated or mm. uh, traded you know, for other things. Uh, uh, left the group uh, to go on to other scales, other mm. styles of model railroading. Uh, one fellow's really big into live steam in his backyard mm. on uh, G- on the 45-millimeter track. Mm. So, uh, you know, he he was one of the people that was involved in cutting the lumber and, and assembling the first modules, but you know, now he's got something else to do. So Fair enough, fair enough. Yeah. And in terms of these modules, do they follow any module specification or are they just what you're – you know, your local crew decided to do? I think it's mostly a local uh, decision. I'm not sure if we meet anybody else's standards. The From the front edge to the outer uh, edge of the nearest rail uh, is uh, six inches. Mm. It's the it's um, OM30, by the way. Oh, interesting. I to mention that. That's important. And, uh, but the... the Real neat thing about that is when the grandkids are around, you can run HO on it too. Same track. Certainly, certainly. So interesting. So you do run it multi-purpose. I've often wondered about people whether they ran uh, ON30 multi-purpose. So what do you have, like Thomas or, or kids-specific trains that you run HO, or do you just put HO trains on and run it accordingly? Oh, um, my grandson Ryan. He's he'll have a. He'll set up H O N G L. He'll put everything all on one on one uh, layout. He very good. And you got to have buildings and people. Very layouts good. not not complete without buildings and people and and mailboxes and trash cans and all that stuff. Certainly, certainly. So interesting. So basically, all scale goes out the window, and it's just about having fun. Exactly. Wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. So in terms of the uh, ON30 module out, were there existing structures and people and things like that on there, or was it a relatively sparse ON30 layout? Uh, two of them were completely devoid of, of anything, mm-hmm. no, not even a track plan. Interesting. Uh, two of them I had constructed into part of my home layout uh, before moving, and then two of them 
were another modelers. Uh, he had done a very nice job and had you know, finished structures and scenery and whatnot. But he also had a move, and his now uh, his new passion was to do an around the walls, mm-hmm. uh, complete uh, new uh, layout in his house. And the only part of this of the uh, his modules that he kept were the was the locomotives, rolling stock, and most of the structures. Mm. Interesting. Well, it sounds like you're having a lot of fun. It sounds like I you're uh, you're enjoying the hobby in a wide variety of different capacities. In terms of the move, you, you mentioned you know woodworking, wood turning, this kind of stuff. How do you compare what you'd experienced previously with with Tennessee? My understanding talking to people is that Tennessee for many model railroaders is a kind of promised land and there's a wide variety of folk that are doing lots of interesting stuff. What was your feeling associated with the move? Well, uh, we mostly moved because of uh, family concerns mm. and being closer to uh, relatives. Uh, model railroading wasn't really uh, <laughs> a large factor in the equation. The fact that there was an, an existing club here was, was certainly a bonus. Interesting. Interesting. Well, Ralph, thank you for calling back in. It's been a few years since you last called in, um, and uh, it's wonderful to get an, an update on you and get a sense of uh, you in new location. Yeah, I, I think I last called in about show 103 or something like that. Uh, I've got you at show 129 here. Oh, so okay. In February 2017. So, oh. yeah, I think that was the last, yeah. You, you just purchased a train from a friend of yours. I remember we spoke quite a bit about that. Oh, yeah, uh, and that's, then, my, that's my profile picture. <laughs> yes, yes. And also, yeah, you just acquired, I guess, a module of a friend of yours as well. So fitting very well into uh, the discussion we've had today. Thanks, Tom. Pleasure, Ralph. Stay on the line. If anything comes up, you know what to do. Thank you very much for calling back in. like to welcome on the gentleman who may have some insight to me in what less than two hours time maybe an hour and a half time i will be on nmrax you roger my understanding was earlier this month you did a virtual uh clinic what were your experiences with regards to that and how is the model railroading hobby with you currently we uh first had it set up we're going to go on um we're going to go on google uh, but they, we couldn't get enough callers. I don't know if, if you talked to, uh, Hunter, Hunter Houston, Houston was the yeah. first call. Okay. Very good. Yeah. So we, they switched to zoom all of a sudden at the last minute. And, uh-huh. uh, as we clinicians logged in, uh, some of us had a little bit of, uh, technical problems getting on to zoom, especially after supper time at, uh, uh, we had problems with the last three, but we, we got through it anyway. And, uh, cool. Uh, seemed to go okay. Um, Terrific. got through our, what we had to speak about. So yeah, it was, uh, different, uh, because, uh, once we got, uh, talking on Zoom, we were kind of cut off from audience participation. So it's, it's you're talking and you're, yeah. you're hoping that people are picking up what you're, you're saying, but, uh, you can't, uh, respond to any comments or anything until, after you're done speaking and you go back into the, the Zoom session. So that was a little bit uh, of disconnection there that uh, hopefully if we do it again in the future, we'll have some way of getting around that, possibly a second person that possibly could feed you questions from the mm-hmm. audience and that sort of thing. So, uh, yeah, 
Uh, a lot of the comments uh, and participation came in the following week with uh, people signing on to our uh, site and asking questions or making comments, uh, useful comments and that sort of thing. So uh, it was a little bit of uh, yeah, different for somebody that does a lot of uh, live clinics uh, going to the, the Zoom format and uh, trying to, uh, you know, you don't have any audience reaction at all. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Whether yeah. they're laughing at your jokes or whatever. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Certainly reading the crowd when you give a clinic is a really important thing. I'm, I too, I'm a little bit concerned in particular because I don't have, I mean, it's very much in a format where you give like 40 minutes worth of presentation, 45 minutes and then take, 15 minutes worth of questions. I mean, I, it seems artificial with what I'm doing as well. But my hope right. is that this kind of feedback will be moving forward into different and newer technologies. I know NMRX is, you know, they're very particular about the technology they're using. But, um, yeah, it's just an interesting experience. And my hope is that people will just be sympathetic to the fact that this is all new and all, you know, all changing and just, you know, allow for these degree of hiccups. But it would be nice to get... So, I mean, your group is independent, obviously, from NMRX. Do, do you think there are going to be any changes in what you're doing? Well, it's it's a very loose group. There's no official RPM guys, mm. just yes. people that take take place in these things. Anybody can show up and you know register and take part in it. So they don't take any money or anything at all, other than if you have a real you know convention. Of course, they need. Uh, money for the rooms and that sort of thing. So there's no, like anybody can pretty well say, I want to hold an RPM meet and, and invite people and away they go and hold it. So it's not, certainly it's a uh, very small on the organization end of things. Mm. Uh, uh, so people think that, okay, yeah, there's this, this organization RPM that, uh, you know, who's the president or whatever, but it's not set up like that at all. Yes. It's uh, very much a, a volunteer thing, and you get out what you participate in. Uh, I've been out for a few years, uh, having to work at Credit Valley during the weekends and so on, so I couldn't, uh, you know, participate in as many RPM meets as I could uh, wanted to. I've mm. before that I took in as many as I could. Uh, I've been to uh, I don't know, maybe about ten Ontario-based ones and three or four in the states. So, uh, mm. but until you get out there and you present to people don't really, uh, you don't show up on anybody's, uh, horizon sort of thing. <laughs> so, uh, one of the, uh, you know, around here, the people know me, but, uh, not too much, uh, in the States at RPM meets, uh, around Chicago area and so on. So, mm. uh, yeah, it's interesting anyway, but you meet, uh, oh, I sat at, uh, you know, table with, uh, luncheon with Tony Custer and, mm. Uh, some of those people at one of the conventions and, um, uh, it's, yeah, I meet people that are in the press. Um, some of the guys from the, uh, um, uh, Troy, uh, Rensselaer, uh, Polytechnic mm. uh, club and so on. So people that you've read about for years and here you are, you know, having a beer with them and that sort of thing. So it's yes. uh, very informal and a lot of the, uh, interesting, conversation goes on afterwards in the bar uh not so much in the clinic so it's uh, <laughs> yes. lots of fun anyway yeah yes yeah every time i meet tony custer i have exactly the same conversation with him about lionel's triangle it's <laughs> quite a curious 
It's almost like he's an automata in some regard, or I'm the automata. I'm not sure one of us is an automata here. But yeah, it is a, always always a pleasure catching up with Tony. Always a pleasure right. telling him that Lionel is still in the hobby. So, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So in but, terms uh, of the hobby, what has been going on with the Model Railroading hobby in you recently? Well, mostly I'm moving boxes around, and mm. uh, some of them I'm unpacking and uh, populating some of the uh, uh, streets that I have uh on the module part parts that I'm working on, sectional parts I'm working on, uh, getting out some cottages and garages and that sort of thing. Cool. So some plastic models, some cardstock and so on that I've, uh, detailed in the past and, uh, they're, they're fitting in. And when we get to where they used to live on the layout, well, we'll be able to build new ones for that, that area. But, cool. uh, uh, yeah. So, uh, we're moving, filled boxes full of stuff around and trying to unpack what we can to uh, stick on the new shelves we're putting up. But uh, while we, I put up more stud work, so we're just working on the last couple of walls uh, uh, in the next couple of days. So Terrific. hopefully we'll get some more of that stuff done. Yep. Very good. Well, thank you for calling in, Roger. Thank you also for uh, recommending that Hunter calls in. He's uh, he's going to be a welcome addition to Model Royale Radio. It was wonderful to have the chance to to chat with him today, and he's obviously part of your you know regular crew. So it's good that you're uh, right. you're evangelising the format to folks, and they're coming and participating. So thank you as well for uh, for Hunter's participation today. Well, he's one of the closest uh, RPMers, I guess, uh, that live close closest to me anyway. That uh, you know, we're kind of on the same level of modeling and mm. interests and that kind of stuff, even though he's he's doing, uh, you know, Tonawanda in uh, the 70s sort of thing. But um, <laughs> he's uh, got got some great work going on, great weathering and mm. uh, local, you know, the uh, Rust Belt type of uh, steel mills Certainly. and that sort of thing he's working on. So it, uh, it's going to be quite a layout that he's got. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah, the, the depth of history and just the... Incidental knowledge that he had was really wonderful. I really like talking yep. to, to folks in the hobby that um, don't mind, you know, digging deeper. I think that's what's right. interesting that, you know, there's so much stuff to be learned once you start exploring a prototype. And he'd obviously done his homework. So a great fellow to chat with. Very good. I'm glad he got on. Then. Well, Roger, we're wrapping up the show. I've got, like I say, NMRX looming in the, in the near future. But a pleasure catching up. Thank you for calling in. Okay, very good. Uh, ha- have a beer or something beforehand to loosen up. So you, uh, <laughs> uh, that always helps to loosen the vocal cords and uh, keep things flowing. So, uh, yes. uh, thank you for your uh, Very good. Okay, we'll see you. Talk to you soon. Take care. So, folks. A short but nutritious Model Royale Radio today. Always a pleasure catching up with the, the folks in Kent and uh, wonderful meeting Hunter. Just a really fascinating new caller. Thanks to Roger again. And Ralph Watson, a name from the past. Good to have been back in the discussion. And interesting, this tale of moving locations, bringing the layout with you. I think this is something that is so central to the module community. Uh, so it was wonderful to uh, to get Ralph's update. So... As is periodically noted through these recordings, apologies for the delay in getting the recordings out. Unfortunately, work and other related commitments have not let up. I'm taking the week of the 4th of July off the recording, at least, and my hope is to get more recordings out. I'm just 
literally minutes away from getting a recording out. So apologies to the folks for the delays associated with getting these weekly recordings out. But I think the importance of doing these things as frequently as possible is well noted in this recording uh, today with the folks in Kent. And uh, it's something that I'm going to continue to do until we escape from whatever the new normal is. So thanks to the folks for participating today. Thanks for the folks for listening in. Good morning. Good morning, Carl. Speak soon, Tom. Thank you very much.